I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here from the Santa Monica Studios as always, as we're now hard to believe into March. Indian Wells on the doorstep, a lot of good tennis coming up. Now joined in person, might I add, by a Tennis Channel commentator, host of the three podcasts with Amy Lundy Dahl and Joel Drucker. It's Gil Gross, second time on Tennis Channel Inside In, but first in person, Gil. Welcome to the show. Yeah, you know, it's a really big deal. It's a big podcast when yeah. you're in person. Like yeah. when I, I mean, I drove 10 minutes to get oh. here, Mitch. I mean. Yeah, LA resident now. Um, <laughs> although I think you're still loyal to the New York roots, you know, going to Kings games, still supporting the Rangers when they're in town. <laughs> you haven't fully switched over. Uh, no, and, and it's not going to happen. Okay. I mean, I respect that. I do. You got to stay loyal to uh, the brand that gets you. First of all, you know, the podcast itself, three that you guys do a great job with. You, Amy, and Joel. Uh, there hasn't been a shortage of stuff to talk about with the three, uh, which is kind of crazy considering their reign of uh, historical greats, but just how long it's been. Yet here we are in 2022, and it's still still going strong. They're still dominating the headlines on and off the court. When we started the podcast, a lot of people were like, yo, I mean, this is great, but you should have done this 10 years ago. And while nobody would disagree with that, it, it wasn't too late. It's not too late. The only time we've been in the second week of a slam without any of them still playing is U.S. Open 2020 when Djokovic got uh, defaulted for hitting the lines judge. It was like you were like a day away from Mike being into the second (laughs) week. Yeah, it was. was, uh, So, you know, I guess we could say we were about six inches away from not never having the second week of a major without one of the three. With that being said, there have been plenty of examples including this year's Australian Open where only one of our three have have been in play but it and you know Roger has not been playing as much as anyone would have hoped and, and we'll see if he can make a comeback but but yeah there you're right there has not been one moment since starting the podcast right before the uh, 2020 US Open that we've been in a situation where we haven't had t- tennis matches that they're playing in to talk about well First thing being, I don't even know if there were podcasts 10 years ago, maybe, but I mean, it was, <laughs> if we were to start a show back then, we would have been groundbreaking. They've been kind of, and I, Federer and Nadal specifically, Djokovic being younger and hasn't really slowed down, but how long has that demise been predicted? I mean, Federer was like literally like 14 years ago when he loses <laughs> that Wimbledon final to Nadal. It's like he's done and Nadal had the injury, you know, six, seven years ago. But just the uh, the sustained brilliance is what is sticking out to me is just how long these guys are doing it. And, Gil, how they've been able to reinvent themselves leading right into Nadal at Acapulco. He wins that tournament, no sets lost, mind-boggling stat. I mean, these guys are filled with them, but that's 30 tournament wins where he hasn't lost a set, which Ooh. is just insane. But he did it. He goes Tommy Paul, Medvedev, Cam Nori in route to the title. And he does it in a way we're starting to see, and I know you picked up on it early, 
he's kind of reinvented himself. The way he's playing, he's shortening points, he's mixing up his tactics mid-match strategically, and there's a lot to be impressed with, but that's been what's impressed me the most with Rafa. Yeah, he's executing it really well. He's been trying to do this since 2017, but we've seen that he's slowly become more and more comfortable going against what was really in his DNA, which was, I don't like to miss. I don't want to miss. And on that first ball, making an unforced error would be terrible to not make my opponent work for it. But he's had to get out of that mindset. He's had to decide, and Carlos Moya deserves a lot of credit. You have to go after that first forehand. You need to take your chance there. If you miss, you miss, but you're going to land it more more often than not. And we're seeing him play with now, uh, I think, a, a confidence and uh, a lack of tightness or mm-hmm. second-guessing in Acapulco that I think is a byproduct of of what we saw in Australia, and it was uh, it was extremely dangerous. You know how confident Nadal is by how he's hitting his forehand. It's right. it's such right. an interesting shot. It literally gives you kind of a temperature reading on him. How much spin is he hitting with it? And there's how, no margin for error. Exactly. Like the way he hits it inside out from his position on the court, like he has to be at near 100% clip on that. Yeah. Or it's just an easy winner for the other guy. And it was so... It was so good last week. Mm-hmm. It was exactly how he needs to hit it. I mean, it was so penetrating, so heavy. There was just uh, people watch him practice, right? And he's he hits the fuzz off the ball in practice. And it's a question that people ask, well, why doesn't he hit it like that in the match? Well, in the match, there's tension. There's there's yeah, actually yeah, yeah. like a sense of, <laughs> of, of nerves there. Yeah. Uh, Acapulco, it almost looked like he was approaching the way he hits the ball in practice. Yeah, I just thought of something while you were talking there. And all the years ago, and I don't think it was people that were, like, wishing ill on him, but it was, you know, his style. How is it going to last? Like, he plays so intense. How is he going to last? And what I think smart, and, you know, he said he's had to make sacrifices. He says he, he enjoys the process so much. Getting older, he hates not being able to train at the at the clip that he used to. But the fact that he has adjusted his game and that he hasn't, you know, he, he does switch things up, as you said. He, and confident, confidently speaking, I mean, these are some of the nicest sportsmen we've ever seen. But they're arrogant out there. I mean, they, and they know that they're I don't know they're, that they're Nadal good. is. I think he's actually insecure. Well, well did you read? when he's playing Medvedev, yeah. and it's tight, arrogance is a relative term. I think he know he, in his mind, he's like, I, I'm good. Like, I can beat this guy no matter what the scenario is. I mean, I, it's confidence bordering arrogance. Like, there's different ways to kind of be. But the way he plays... And the way he trusts his game, I think arrogance can be a good thing. It just gets I, I used agree. In a different I, way. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. But I think I think Nadal was insightful in his biography that was uh, released in in 2011, I believe, yeah. where I actually think his his fear of losing, his fear that he's not good enough, is actually something that drives him to, and and I think that's a lot of the reason why we see him give the effort that he gives on every single point and Mm -hmm. train so diligently and continue to adapt because he's actually, instead of feeling like I'm the man, I'm the best, I think what motivates him is I might never win a match again. Right. I mean, we hear him talk about first round, second round opponents in in a way that's almost comical, right? Yeah. I mean, Joel always says on the show 
that Nadal could have been, you know, could be getting ready to play Amy or me. And gonna say, Rafa yeah. would be like, yeah, it's going to be a very tough test. I'm just yeah. going to try my best. And, you know, it's just a different I, mentality. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I just think, I think in the match relative to just sure. that one match, I think he believes that, you know, and, he, and why shouldn't he? How good he feels. But, yeah, the process, he treats everybody like it's Djokovic on a hard court. It's it's crazy. Um, no, I mean, and, and these scorelines dictate it. I mean, you look at the Medvedev and Nori matches specifically. Looks like, from the outside, comfortable. These are really close, tightly contested matchups. I mean, Medvedev especially, 11 break points saved the 20-minute game. And that's not even taking into account all the deuces and the 30-alls that he got, but he wins the big points, and he does it in a way that is backbreaking when he holds his serve specifically. Like, when he holds his serve in a 20-minute game, guys even like Medvedev, number one in the world, how do you overcome not being able to break through when you have all those chances? The break points were saved impressively mm -hmm. against Medvedev. There was one backhand error on Daniil's part that was just needless, mm -hmm. and it, it just felt like a very bad mistake. But we're talking about, uh, do you remember how many break points in that game, in that specific game? Um, no, not well, specific. Well yeah. over five. Yeah, it was at least uh, half of the clip for the whole match, and that was, I mean, you, you, you said it perfectly. There was a lot of just great shot making by Nadal. He yeah. came to net. He defended well at the net. He moved it around, and he took his chances, too. They weren't played timidly, those break points. No. There, was a, there was a serve volley in there. I think the first three were saved with just excellent forehands, um, whether, whether that be first ball forehands or, or mid-rally. Uh, and then there were also some drop shots. The way Nadal is able to attack Medvedev, Medvedev's world-class, otherworldly defense, is so far superior to... So many other guys on tour, you can really see that that Nadal Nadal is able to do things with his forehand, with angles and pace, yeah. with net play, with drop shots, and with that full array, he really you know Medvedev's movement is not as much of a problem for Nadal as it is for ninety nine percent of other players. Do you think Medvedev, from his perspective, I mean, this is another loss in not nearly as big of a match, but it's another loss against Rafa. Is it the pressure of facing Nadal so many times, the number one ranking? Does that come into play? How do you gauge where Medvedev is at specifically against this guy? Yeah, th that was a subpar performance as much as I – and look, it's both. And that's when, when you get 6-3, six, 6-3 three, six, three in a matchup that should be really good, really close – it usually means the player who won played great, and it all played great. You're not taking credit away. That was subpar for Medvedev. Mm -hmm. It was not on on the regular standard of his level. Um, and I think there's a couple of factors. First of all, you are. First of all, there's the the Russia Ukraine thing happening, and yeah. and you just don't know how that's going to affect Russian players. Obviously, right. Ukrainian players, Belarusian players, right now. It's just an X factor we don't know, and I just think it should be thrown out there as a possibility. The second thing is, you know, the five to one head to head deficit uh, against Medvedev that that he's looking at an opponent in Nadal who's given him more trouble than everyone else, including Novak Djokovic. Now you throw in the conditions in Acapulco. To me, it's a clay court bounce, mm. slow and high bouncing. Yeah. 
Now, Medvedev moves better on a hard court than a clay court, so you'd think he'd have a better chance at beating Nadal in Acapulco than he would in Paris, for example. But still, I feel like Medvedev, looking at Nadal, who's given him so much trouble, looking at the court surface, I don't know that he took the court with the belief that we were talking about. And I know that sounds insane, but he played a weird match, lots of serve volleying. He wasn't patient. He he didn't seem locked in, and he said after the match that he had energy issues. Sometimes energy issues mean that that you just weren't quite fully sunk into battle, and I don't think he was here. Yeah, he was right there, though. That's the thing. It's crazy. I was agree he, with though? you. Well, I mean, what happens if he gets Nadal one of those... Nadal was up a break, yeah, right? right. The game gotcha. that we're referring to where, yeah. where there's a million break points, Nadal was up a break there. Right. It would have been three all. So okay. uh, to me, it didn't feel... Yeah, like I, I do agree. Like The odds are, based on the way that was playing, you're right, that Nadal finds a way to get another break and win the match. But, yes, there was stuff left on the table where if he plays better, who knows? But, I mean, I, I agree with you there. Uh, Rafa's <laughs> career best start, 15-0. Unreal. Uh, he's serving, he's holding a server like 90%. And uh, it is just insane when they were digging up the best starts. Djokovic, 41-0 from 2011, which... It's just kind of hard to comprehend at this point that you could start 41-0. But I do want to wrap, wrap up Acapulco by giving credit and shout-out to Cam Nori, who's you know in the, was in the final of another tournament after winning Del Rey's in the top 10 now. And again, I mean, you could argue that that match with Nadal was closer than the Medvedev match, the way they played, and he was there. And, you know, how he hits his backhand is kind of Connors-like. And I just – there's a lot about how solid he is and the growth that he's made in his game – really breaking through at Indian Wells last year and keeping it going into 2022. And I was worried about him because he started the season 0-3 at ATP Cup, and then he played one of the worst matches, probably the worst match I've seen him play, against Sebastian Corda in the first round in Australia, mm. where he just looked like he had... He, he looked like he was a shattered player, honestly, because of what happened, I think, earlier on in the season where he played great opponents at the ATP Cup. And I wasn't worried after the ATP Cup, but after the quarter performance, I was a little bit concerned, I'm not going to lie. And it's it's great that he's turned the page and, and turned things around completely. And I've always thought Cam Norrie's legit. He he poses a lot of problems on the tennis court for, uh, for players and... You know, at this point, it's so far beyond. I mean, if you want to look at his game and question what his ceiling is beyond what he's done, that might be fair. But to to consider that that he's some sort of flash in the pan, <laughs> that, that ship has sailed. Like, he's not. Yeah. He is as good. Cam Nori is what his ranking says I mean, he, he got is. to the top 10. Like, so if he doesn't get any further, he's a top 10 player. Exactly. And, and that's... I mean, we've got nobody, this, we've nobody got would this, have predicted yeah. that, right? About we've gotten Cam to this Nord. point with tennis where obviously the big three are amazing, best ever, but yeah. like we don't want to minimize other accomplishments. Like no. this is a top 10 player, college tennis player that had to really grind and break through, and there's, right. you know, levels to it. And I, you know, I remember watching him come up and, you know, playing, and uh, I think he made the, I think he won his first tournament in like Adelaide or something like that. And, you know, that was like this big thing. Oh, this guy's top 60, top 50. And to just yeah. make that next step, it's just even more impressive. Yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone saw it coming with him. Um, but he, he just got so physical. And the, the, the endurance and the consistency and the awkwardness of playing with him uh, with the, 
the forehand that has a lot of net clearance, a lot of top spin and height versus the backhand, which is the polar opposite. <laughs> yeah. He hits it like a frozen rope with no net clearance, and it's it's low, and he gets really good angle on it cross court despite not having a lot of spin on it. Uh, he's worked on making the serve and the forehand a bigger weapon. He said that the serve is the thing he most wants to improve moving forward. If if you're looking at Cam Nori with a big lefty serve, if he can accomplish that, that's where you start to see the ceiling really, really rise with him. But um, I, I think the next step to finish on on Nori, if you will, is uh, is to play well at the majors. Yep. Because uh, he has not been past the third round. There's been a couple of bad draws but I think that's really weighing on him at this point in his career. He's made the top 10. It's incredible. Now he probably wants to make the second week of a major. That's next. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Yo, Gross here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Well, uh, turning our attention to the other member of the big three that's been playing, a little bit playing, I should say, Novak Djokovic. Dubai. Couple matches, gets upset by Yuri Vesely, who was undefeated against him in two matches <laughs> and had that run all the way to the semis of Dubai. But, Gil, I know you, I know a lot of people that listen to your podcast probably think that you, Amy, and Joel, you're just watching hours and hours of film. And you have the perspective of breaking down Djokovic on a weekly basis and have been for a while. What did you take away in that small sample size in his matches against Musetti, Hatchinoff, and then the loss to Vesely? What did you like? What didn't you like from his game? Mm, I uh, I thought he didn't play that bad a match against Vesely. You know, this was, to me, on a lightning quick court in a, the best of three set format, a player who goes after it and has really massive weapons and never dipped and was fearless. That is kind of the perfect formula to me. And, of course, a Novak who just looked a, a little bit off his calibration at times, but but nothing major. I thought that defensively, he's usually a little bit better, more balanced when he's on the move, and he's kind of anticipating and, and timing his, his defense a lot better than he was able to do against Vesely. But ultimately, this felt like, again, kind of the classic upset ingredients here with yeah. the conditions, the opponent, the schedule spot, ultimately Novak in general, he is not, if you look at his losses and his surprising losses in recent years, Dan Evans last year was sure. on clay was probably his most surprising loss. Usually the calendar spot explains it. Right. He's usually, when he gets to play Australia, he loses a lot early. Like he's lost early. I think in 2015, he lost like Karlovich before everything and like Doha or something. Yeah. I get that. Do you think this is just i mean calibration is perfect because he's the guy that recalibrates mid-match <laughs> and just destroys opponents that take a set off of him do you think it's match toughness as simple as that like he needs to play more i mean if he gets the opportunity to play more matches he'll kind of round into form it's been a weird couple of years for him when it comes to match toughness because he I think last year he played so few tournaments but was doing something so historic every time he took the court 
the weight of tennis yeah. history was on his shoulders. Yeah. And, you know, I do think it's very healthy for a player to play tournaments without that pressure and to get those reps in. And I thought we saw it in Paris last year when he played Medvedev and he served volleyed over and over and over and over again. And I just don't think he could have um, he could have implemented that game plan at Wimbledon or the U.S. Right, Open right. without having ever tried it before. Uh-huh. So that's why these opportunities to play are so valuable. Is it going to hurt him that he doesn't play? Yes. <laughs> I think yeah. uh, I think that's a blanket statement about any tennis player. Oh, yeah. If I you said don't that play, about Osaka you. last year, too. Like, she tr- you know, coming back after, uh, you know, in Cincinnati losing to Teichman, it's like, well, you got to kind of get out there. These players, even those in the 60, 70, 80 range, are world class. And uh, yeah, you you hit it on it. Vesley played well. It wasn't like it was just a, a terrible performance. Vesley went for his shots and won that match after he was serving for it and got broke, which is something that hardly ever happens. Yeah. Uh, and I just, the last thing on Djokovic, I mean, my perspective as well, I don't think, I view him more, it's like that, is he a villain? Is he a maverick? Like he falls more in that maverick category where he's going to do things his own way. But I don't necessarily think he's walking onto the court like, you know, Trey Young in New York City, like trying <laughs> to just get a rise out of everybody. No, he, definitely not. He doesn't care if you boo against him. Like he plays better under those conditions maybe again than anybody I've ever seen. Just look at Wimbledon in 2019. But I do think he's more of that maverick type where he, he will find motivation, like all the all-time greats will. And uh, I just, I would like to see him play again. We don't know when that's going to be. But I don't take much into a loss, again, putting a bow on it to a guy that played a heck of a match and him being his first tournament of the year. Yeah, and by the way, as the memories of that match <laughs> kind of flood back because a lot can happen in a week, it was also a terrible serving day by Novak. That, that was the worst part of his game. Mm-hmm. It was the second serve yep. was really, really bad. But, uh, you know, that's the age-old question when you talk about Djokovic in the crowd. It's clear he does care, right? He cried at the U.S. Open when he got, because he was getting supported. And he hasn't gotten that support at New York. And that that is showing how much the support could mean to him and, and that he wants it. Has he been able to play well without it? Yes. But uh, does it have long-term effects of kind of, I think, wearing Novak down emotionally? I think that could be true. And in Dubai, it was an ex- extremely positive reception. I think that that meant a lot to him. I, you know, what what I think we're going to see as a result of this public kind of vaccine thing and the Australian immigration thing, Novak just got more polarizing. Uh, people are going to root for him even more passionately than they were before. You know, some, you know, those who kind of agree with the stance that he's taken, which are a lot of people, by the way. You can just read YouTube comments. It's a lot of people. Read our comments as well. We post stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Cheap plug there. Right, right. Uh, You know, but then there's going to be people who are rooting against him more passionately than they were before because uh, he's become a, a little bit bigger than tennis. So I still am trying to figure out how... It affects him. Do you put anything into, uh, you know, the split this week? Marion leaving the team, Marion Vado leaving the team. I mean, it, it wasn't had anything to do with anything sure. that's going on. He's, you know, getting up there, wants to slow down, spend some family time on and off, but 15, 16 years of being a part of his team. Yeah, and when he left the team, things were turned very bad very quickly back in uh, 2016, and that was when Pepe Imaz was was with Novak. Um you know, I, I think this time will be different yeah. if I'm reading the tea leaves. And the I think the biggest reason is because the team was Vida and Ivanisevic. And they were kind of splitting time 
which showed you that, you know, Vida was already trying to step back and kind of transition out. And I thought that was maybe the first sign. And Goran's been great for Novak. And we've seen that Novak can can, can win with Ivanisevic. So as long as kind of that relationship is intact, I don't think there's a dramatic change here. And I think everything's going to be all right. I mean, do you like to see change at all with when someone's number one in the world just won the first three slams of, of last year? Of course you don't want to see change. You know, it's it's never really something that I think if you're a Novak fan uh, would be taken as good news. But I also think that it should turn out a lot better than it did the last time Vida left the team. It seemed like this was in the works too, so it's not catching anybody off off guard and there was a plan here. No. So, um, However, I don't, I don't want to speculate. I also right. think there's a balance here. What Novak puts out into the public, what Vida puts mm-hmm. out into the public, they are uh, they have been to their credit very very good at at keeping things private, keeping things under wraps. If some if anything happened, if if there were any complications, we would never find yeah. out about it. I believe that because of what a closed book Vida has been, barely giving any interviews. Mm-hmm. Nothing leaks really with Djokovic, <laughs> yeah. and and Novak is the same way. He he's not going to talk about that kind of thing. So uh, I do think we should acknowledge that we might not have all the facts, but there's no reason to speculate that something happened either. What are your thoughts just in, in uh, you know, in Dubai, Andre Rublev continues <laughs> his reign as king of the 500s? It's, uh, I, it's huge for Andre. I mean, I guess I didn't realize how down he was on himself. Well, do you see anyone just kind of joking, but also true, that like looks like they hate a tennis ball more than him? Because every swing yeah, is just yeah, like taking course. out aggression there. But I love that, though. The recovery of how physical he plays how he plays a lot of long matches and he's starting to show some real grit to me in terms of when he's not at his best, when he's down a set, when there's conditions where it would be easy to take that side exit door, he's digging back in and you know, this was earned. This was not easy. Yeah. Uh, Andre is convinced that the next step for him is mental, which is interesting because you know, he, he has continued to say that over and over again. Like I just need to, figure things out mentally. That's where I'm missing. And we've just seen him at the majors, especially now four in a row, losing to opponents ranked way lower than him. Um, We've seen just this certain level of anxiousness and he goes dark on himself that he needs to try to cut out of his game. But when things are, when things are firing, I'm not a, I'm not a subscriber at all. in like the, Andre Rublev doesn't have enough variety to be a top player. I totally don't buy that. Uh, I think what Andre does well can take him so far. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it can take him to number one in the world. But again, what is our standard? Here? There's not many steps left. Like, I mean, it's majors. And it because his rankings are like, could he be a top three or four guy? It's on the table now. For sure. He's proven that he can beat all these guys. Mental is huge, and it's it's tricky because it's probably what got him to this point was being so aggressive and you know relying on his emotions. But you do have to dial it back. You can't be as volatile. Yes, like yes. when you're when you're playing badly or when you're at a major where there's extra pressure. And the match is so long; it's best of five, so there's time to regroup, catch your breath, yes. and re-strategize. So maybe but. that an- intensity has also worn him out because he's burnt out in a lot of these fifth sets. Uh, Martin Fucevic at Wimbledon last year; he's burnt out there. 
Yeah, it's not really a fitness thing either because the guy's shown that he's super fit and he's able to play. I don't think it's... I don't know, though, if he's on the same... Mm. He's looked tired to me at times yeah. deep in five-setters. So I don't True. I don't know. You know, you're right. It might not be a fitness thing, but I'm I'm not convinced that uh, that Rublev's conditioning is not an area that can still get better and and help him win more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More with Gil Gross here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Well, speaking of Rublev, and to kind of transition to the more serious stuff, he's been pretty outspoken uh, in terms of just, you know, trying to promote peace with the Ukraine-Russia thing, obviously way bigger than tennis. And we've seen what's happened in the in the world of tennis with now ITF, ban of Russia, Belarus. Uh, the Russian athletes can compete, but not under the flag. Same with Belarus. They're going to just be competing for themselves, essentially. Uh, it's a tough situation and props and mad respect to the Ukrainian ath- athletes, Svitolina, Kostyuk, Kostramsky, uh, Stavkovsky, and then the boxers as well, the Klitschko brothers and Lomachenko who are serving. Yeah, um, It's a tough situation, and I want to just put it into perspective with there's no playbook to handle this um, for the Ukrainian athletes to just do what they've done. That's the first thing that stood out with me, that to be able to go back out of the court for Yastrzemska and Svitolina specifically – it takes a lot of uh, a lot of guts and a lot of heart. And you could see that everybody else says that in times where you know we're playing for something more, something bigger. This is one of those times when you can actually see the emotion of Yastremska when she wins that match, Fidelina after they are playing for something more than themselves. And they've used the platform so well. It's hard to kind of it's hard to reconcile, right? Because tennis is it's supposed to be an escape, but do are they do they want to escape? Absolutely not. Like they they would feel guilty to escape. They want to uh be with, you know, th- their heart and mind is obviously back home with their families, with their country. Um so as a result, I think what they've what they've all done, Marta Kostyuk and Svitolina and um and and Yastremska, they've just all used the platform that tennis has given them to First of all, in the case of Yastremska, especially, shed light mm-hmm. on how horrible this has been. Yeah. You know, Yastremska talking about leaving her mother and father, taking her sister, taking a boat to Romania because there were no flights out of Ukraine, how difficult it was to even get out of the country. You know, to tell these stories being one of the more, I mean, let's face it, as far as, as sports go, at least in, in my world, from my perspective, one of the most famous Ukrainians in the world, uh, to to put these stories out there is uh, is important. And I just think, once again, tennis and geopolitics, they're inseparable because of the international way this sport is. Right. And um, again, I think tennis has, has done well here for the most part. It took a little while for the tours and the Grand Slams to, to act, but I think they've come to the right place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to add, obviously, uh, as far as the Russian tennis players go, and this is just more of like a life philosophy for me, too. I try not to judge in terms of what, you know, what the situation is in Russia. As long as, I mean, this is just my philosophy, too, but it's like as long as you're not just 
parroting, you know, pro-war type stuff. Yeah. Which what which no one's doing. I, I want to make that clear. But like, there's certain circumstances that we uh, living in America or living out we aren't privy to. So I think it's great. I'm in the positive camp of it's great that players like Rublev obviously going above and beyond writing stuff on the camera, talking about it. Medvedev, Pavlyuchenkova coming out with those statement today, asking for peace. Azarenka as well. That's all I think we are really. That's all we really can ask for. I think in this situation. Totally. And and you need to be also kind of sympathetic if you're in Andre Rublev's situation and you have family back in Russia. Mm-hmm. It, it could be very scary to speak out against a war. I mean, we can look at our country's history and there have been times where it's been scary to yeah. speak out against a war effort. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. These are ordinary citizens. They are not responsible for the actions of their government. And I think that... I think that we do need to be kind of understanding and not hold them responsible for things that that their government is doing. For me, as an American, I would hate to be held responsible. Right. And I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. I think you're going to agree with this. You don't want to be held responsible for things your government does. It's not fair. And especially, even more so, an autocratic government. Yeah. Right? Because, I mean, we elect our officials here. Putin allegedly is elected. I I don't know Mm. about that. It doesn't really seem seem the case. Um, So, you know, it's a completely different animal. And, yeah, I think the Russian and Belarusian athletes not only deserve um, the benefit of the doubt here, but even deserve perhaps some sympathy. Well, I'm glad we were able to kind of just, you know, discuss that. And, again, all sympathy with the Ukrainians, uh, tennis players, and just ordinary citizens going through their lives. Uh, switching back to tennis, I do want to just get your thoughts quickly on uh, the return of Iga Swantek as like a legit contender. She wins. She gets that big title uh, in Dubai now. Just 20, 20 years of age still, hard to believe. But her hardcore game looks immaculate. Like, you know, like it wasn't the major that she won. She won it on clay, but she beats Sabalenka. She beats Sakri for the first time in her career, and then she beats Contivate. So she went through that gauntlet, comes out on the other side, and I've just been impressed with her all-court, you know, variety of her game as well. I don't know why, like, I don't know that the discourse around Sviantec has been almost too, like, muted. Is anyone talking about her be, being, you know, a, a multiple major champion? I, I think the possibilities are massive for her. I think people maybe forget about her age um, for somehow. I don't somehow. know. I don't know exactly what happens, but anyway, I think the the net net is last year Sviatek was the only WTA player to make the round of sixteen at all four majors. She was unbelievably consistent. She did not have this explosive run uh, in in any big events, and that's fine. The consistency she showed was unbelievably impressive at her age. The Sabalenka win and the Contivate win last week those are the exactly the matches that she's been losing so it was amazing to see her win that because big hitters on a quick court she has been too defensive she's been overpowered and i love that she's transforming herself she's forcing herself to take uh to take initiative more on quicker surfaces to play more aggressive to take the ball earlier and it's taken her a little while to to believe i think in those situations but now now that she's starting to believe, we've seen what the score lines look like too. When when she beats players, when she's confident, it, it's scary. And I think that 
I think Sviantec is is on her way to number one in the world. That's a, I mean, I'm buying the stock too, by the way. I'm in. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, that Sabalenka win was eye-opening because yeah. she was hitting right with her, if not overpowering her at times. And if that happens, I mean, watch out, tennis world. Uh, congrats to her. Uh, you know, and I do have to ask you this. Is the Ostapenko run, is that the end or the beginning? That was <laughs> two, three weeks of just bliss, basically. She's done this before. Maybe not as, maybe not as, uh, noteworthy of the wins that she was racking up the score lines, but loses the cont of it kind of loses going away. Okay. Matches will happen. She's played a lot of tennis, but it's my question is at the end or the beginning. <laughs> uh, hopefully for her, it's the middle, uh, okay. All right. that it's, that it's not going to be, I, I guess she's, she's not as good as she showed in 2017. Yeah. Maybe she's not as bad as, as she's shown at times in subsequent years, but, Look, do I do I think Ostapenko has certain limitations? Yes, you know, to go along with her unbelievable talent and skills, her aggressive returning of serve is it's like, it's like abnormally <laughs> or like comically aggressive. Yeah, sometimes. yeah, and it's it's unbelievable how yeah. she's able to time returns of serve and change directions down the line. Yeah. I mean, I would just I would hate to hit second serves to to Ostapenko. It must just feel like a terrible, it's like terrible free, experience. It's like free point air or just a winner against you it's like crazy with her all well right. these rankings are getting getting pretty crazy as well with Krejcikova now at number two in the world uh Kontavit's raising up with no really like, a, a huge opportunity in the summer coped with all the points Barty's defending Barty Gill now 117 <laughs> weeks at number one yeah and I saw 110 straight which is fifth all time now I know pandemic you've got to kind of you know historically look at it but yeah that's that's almost an unprecedented run that she's going on if Barty has two more great years in her, we're suddenly going to be looking at Ash Barty, and it's going to be all of her accomplishments. It's going to be like Serena, Venus, Graf, Everett, Navratilova, Ash Barty. I mean, that, it's that, in play. That, it that, is. That's what, and I'm not saying that's the case right yeah. now, but I'm just saying if if you look at what she's done right. over and and from a longevity perspective, I don't think she's ever going to get to those to to where some of those players reached in terms of accumulating uh major titles that she's not gonna she's not gonna approach that but you're looking at the number one in the world records that she's already encroaching on uh a couple more years and she's gonna be in that rare company it's just gonna be a fact and <laughs> and i could see people getting upset like oh she's not as good as them I'm, that's not what i'm even saying or, or analyzing i'm just saying in the record books she's getting there yeah she is literally she's been she started now three seasons in a row at number one. The five players I just named are the only players to have ever done that. So yeah. you can get mad at me all you want. That's the fact. Yeah. Five one down, second set, Aussie Open final <laughs> wins that set. I, she, I, I love watching her play too. And I, maybe it's just because I love watching players that frustrate people. Um, and that's what she does. So that's going to be fun to see. I can't wait to see how it, how it turns out um, before I let you go. Uh, two more quick things. One being Roger's return with hitting with his wife, of course. <laughs> but uh, good to kind of hear that story. Bad to hear the other part of that story that Wimbledon's unlikely. But I don't think we're surprised by that revelation. No. 
I, I have a question because I didn't actually. I saw this, but I haven't looked into it. Is there video out of this hitting session, or is it just? I don't even know if it's happened it's, yet. Oh, oh, okay. It's scheduled. Well, the live stream. I, if there was a camera crew there, it would do better ratings than a lot of sports shows, not just tennis. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Like Federer eating yogurt is going to do you know, numbers, <laughs> but I digress. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, it, it's been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to me. I do think that there's some reason for for hope, not optimism, but hope. Uh, I think those words are maybe a little bit different. Optimism seems like you're thinking things will go well. Hope means you think there's a chance that things can go well, and I feel like it's the latter. I think there's hope uh, because it seems like the the medical lengths that Roger ultimately decided to to go to were lengths that he was resisting, and and he was not going there for for uh, for a long time and his surgeries were minor and arthroscopic and now it, it seems and he hasn't divulged all the details but it seems like he's going to he's gone to greater lengths medically and and maybe that'll do the trick you know you don't know i mean and you hope that you hope that he can have a a story like Andy Murray and again i don't know if that could also be seen as uh I think most people would take that, and I know Andy's had some struggles with uh, being healthy and just not quite being able to win as many matches as he used to. But I feel like that should that kind of storyline for Roger would be a win at this point. It would be a win for us, but you said most people would take that. It's like Andy Murray's not taking that. Like he's not happy. Like he wants because these guys who have accomplished such great things, like. You hear Murray talk, and it's it's in a little way in a little way it's kind of inspiring. Like this guy's done so much just to even get back there and not wreck off these matches. He's like, no, like I can do better. Right, so he's, he's, a, he's annoyed. Yeah, he's annoyed that he's losing matches. Kind of cool. I think it's kind of cool that he's right. But you know. he's gonna look back. I think on the rocking chair. And he's glad that he was that mm -hmm. Roberto Batista Good at the Australian Open was not his last ever match, right? That was the weirdest. Like <laughs> they played the video. He's like, I'm not done. <laughs> so yeah, I I just. We're all appreciative. I think I speak for the tennis community. I never really do this, but, you know, we're all appreciative of any Federer we get at this point. Yeah. So we'll see, hopefully, sooner rather than later. Uh, Gail, it's been great. Last thing, uh, tennis this week. You know, you've been working on the T2 coverage here at Tennis Channel, which has been uh, nice to see. A new promotion with Samsung. And we've got action in Monterey, Leon, you know, all tennis all day, which is how we do it. What are your thoughts on some of the matches there and some of the uh, – Interesting storylines going forward. Well, I, you, you know, watching Svitolina in in Monterey um, and and Yastremska in Lyon is going to be paramount. There's no doubt about that. Um, I uh, I really enjoyed the uh, Irani Buskova match. Oh yeah. Uh, yesterday, I mean, I had a blast calling that match. I mean, two players with unbelievable warrior fighting spirit who are great athletes and models of endurance and um Irani Irani might I mean we'll see you know she was she couldn't she had a good week this week she had, she was on a seven match losing streak uh coming into the week and she qualified and almost beat Boskova who just won the Guadalajara final and Boskova by the way I think she'll will get hopefully she'll get back to the top 50 where she uh where she was a couple years back um because I, I I do enjoy watching uh, what she brings to the table. I don't know. Um, that is that is kind of uh, what I'm feeling at the moment. I got one addition to that, and I'm just curious to see her play the Monterey defending champ Leila Fernandez. Yeah, it's changed since then. That was the first title. 
high ranking, high pressure expectations. Just want to see what what she has in store. I'm really excited for the second round match. Zhang Xinwen mm. versus Layla Fernandez is going to be good, Mitch. Um, Xinwen is not... She, she hits as big as anyone. She reminds me a little bit of Clara Towson. And she's 19 years old from China. Uh, career high, 77 in the world. This is only like her fifth WTA main draw. So she's very new and people aren't really onto her yet. But but she is on her way. So it's going to be a good test for Layla. Excited to see it. Uh, Gil Gross, thanks for joining Tennis Channel Inside In. Becoming an LA resident, we'll have to get you... You know, some swag here. Like, welcome to L.A. I'm a yeah, full-timer now. I agree. I agree. You do need to get me that. And by the way, corporate, let me just expand on the T2 thing. This is awesome because yeah. if you have a Samsung TV, this is corporate Gil speaking. Okay. Uh, the floor is yours. <laughs> if you have a Samsung TV, uh, you, are, you, you basically get your choice um, between what Tennis Channel is showing or another match for free. This is outside of Tennis Channel Plus, which obviously costs money. This is a second feed for free, and it's usually on what is deemed, you know, the second best match at the time. So we're giving we're giving options to tennis fans here. This is huge. Oh, it is the best thing we could do because there's too many tennis matches to just show one. Like that's the thing. Like it puts us in a in a better position where now more people can watch more matches. What's not to love Let's about go. that? Uh, Gil, best uh, best luck with everything. Glad to have you on as always. It'll be doing it again, and uh, appreciate you coming on the show. Anytime, great to be here. That was Gil Gross on Tennis Channel Inside In. If you like the show, you can find the whole catalog at the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com/podcast for this show, all the other shows on our network, such as the Tennis.com Podcast with Kamal Murray, Three with Gil Gross, and Amy Lundy Dahl and Joel Drucker, and many more shows under our catalog. We'll be back next week to preview Indian Wells, talk other tennis storylines, and a uh, special exclusive interview with Tracy Austin discover, discussing her upcoming uh, feature in Tennis Magazine. For Go Gross, I'm Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.